The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and very soon to be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. You know, I'm I'm feeling much better about things because with two hosts. And all the rain we've had here in California, at least you and I can march two by two onto that arc. Hey, that's true. Good point. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So anyway, yeah, it's been quite a quite a week out here on the west coast of the United States. I gather the rest of the country, some of those who are listening to us this uh, today, uh, are going to get some of the tail end of this weather that's going to dump snow and rain and maybe even tornadoes elsewhere in the country. So I yeah, wish everyone you know, we're, we're both uh, denizens of the central coast and we got hit with a lot of rain here too. And the Bay Area was certainly hit hard. I know uh, San Jose had some flooding and it really reminds you of the importance of water control, the Oroville Dam and uh, just how important uh, water control is. Well, yeah, we went for a couple of years when our topics dealt with the scarcity of water, and we talked about desalinization, we talked about environmentalists versus the dams, everything was about how do we get more water, and now for the past month, all we've been talking about is how to deal with all the water we've got. I know, our, our cup runneth over. It, yes, literally. Yeah, so speaking of uh, our cup runnething over... Run a thing? Did I say run a thing? You did say that, but I was going to let it go. Okay. I may have made up a word. Uh, We have uh, an opportunity to continue our discussion on immigration-related issues, Supreme Court-related issues, and, of course, the Fourth Amendment, which is front and center now as a result of all the attention placed on the U.S. and uh, U.S.-Mexico border. And I think we should probably go back into that topic and maybe loop back on to a couple of things we had talked about last week involving uh, President Trump's executive order. Well, and well, first, I want to start right off by giving you some props, because I think as we signed off on our discussion of what was going to go on next with the Ninth Circuit, with Ju- uh, Justice Robards, and, the, and, and President Trump's executive order related to immigration, uh, your final words or final thoughts were that you expected to see the White House to rewrite that policy with the guidance, we'll, we'll give it 
kind words, the, the guidance of the Ninth Circuit in mind. And lo and behold, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Were you on the phone with them? No, I wasn't, but I'll, I'll take partial credit for that. I don't think it was that bold a prediction, actually, Mitch, but uh, it, it, it is going to focus or lead to a lot of new scrutiny in terms of the way it's drafted, and I, I anticipate that great time and attention will be given to it. And I think you're right. Uh, there were a lot of cues and clues from the Ninth Circuit's opinion, and I would expect the administration to look very carefully at those clues in the redraft. Well, let, me, let me just say while we're talking about that, because it was part of our discussion, that I, I must, let, let me give a little credit where credit is due. This tone of conversation by the White House about taking guidance from the courts on these critical constitutional issues is a much better way to go. I mean, that goes right to what you and I and, and Michael Cohen were talking about, which is this balance of powers in the United States that balances the executive with the judiciary, with the legislative. The, the White House, as we said, the president had the right to issue these executive orders. The court made very clear that the court has jurisdiction to review issues related constitutionality and executive orders. And now, as, as I really hope will be the pattern going forward, the next executive order supposedly is going to take that court's guidance into, into consideration, and, and that would make me feel a lot better about things. I think that's right, Mitch, and I think it's a good wake-up call for the administration, or really any administration, because this idea of there being unfettered discretion with executive orders, I think, was uh, long overdue for extra doses of scrutiny. So we will see what comes out of the new language and see how it is scrutinized and no doubt we'll be talking about that uh, as it uh, makes its way through court scrutiny and public scrutiny. Uh, I think, uh, right, I think this will not be the last we're talking about that. Uh, let, me, let me help transition into that, that next conversation because this topic of border, the border and issues and rights and constitutional rights on the border really does touch on some topics we've had before on the show, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically now of this question of if you are coming back into the United States, whether you're a citizen, visa holder, green card holder, if you are coming back across the United, into the United States, the question has arisen, can the Customs and Border Patrol agents search your cell phones? And I got to say, a little red light went off, and I went, wait a minute, I'm certain that Stephen and I talked about cell phone searches, because didn't the Supreme Court talk about that last year? They did, they did in the case of Riley, and you're right, we did talk about it, and it's interesting how we have opportunities, uh, quite organically, by the way, to, to talk about topics once again, and uh there's another little bit of irony too, Mitch, for me, and that is that uh, it just so happens that this is a topic I've been talking about in my class in criminal procedure. So it's way, way on the front burner right now. All right, so let's, All right, so let's remind everybody about Riley because we, we had quite a, quite a good time with that one because that, yeah, so that was a big change. In that was a big, uh, yeah, big case. Cell phone um, privacy rights. That's true, yeah. And what happened there was um, Riley was decided along with 
another case, uh, a companion case, or a case that raised similar issues having to do with mobile phone or smartphone searches. And prior to the Riley decision, law enforcement was permitted to search a smartphone or a so-called mobile phone without a warrant. And by way of real important background, it's important to note that for ages and ages, there has been a judicial preference that all searches be conducted pursuant to a warrant. So the well, idea... Again, it goes back to what we just started talking about with is the idea that's the balance of power in our government, that the, the police can search, but when in doubt, they're supposed to go ask a judge, and that's what the warrant is. That's the judge saying, yes, you can go search, right? That's right. That's right. And a, a good way to explain that one, Mitch, that I think resonates with most people is that when there's a warrant, there's a written affidavit, which is, which is actually a sworn statement, a probable cause statement. So the detective or the police officer who presents the warrant to a magistrate, a judge, is doing so under oath. So the idea behind warrants uh, adding an extra layer of scrutiny or so-called trustworthiness is that there is scrutiny by a magistrate and a judge before law enforcement goes out to execute a warrant and invade an area of the utmost privacy, which is very often someone's home. So that's the, the root behind it and the policy behind it, and therefore there being a judicial preference that searches be conducted pursuant to a warrant. And then Riley went and took that, which we were really a bit surprised, as I recall, and said that unless there's, I think you called it exigent circumstances, like an emergency or a safety issue for a police officer, uh, that yes, they could seize a phone per, as part of a, an arrest, but unless there was an emergency going on right there, they had to go to the court and say, now I want a warrant. Everything's safe. We've got them in we're holding someone in detention, we're holding the phone, unless we think it's going to explode or be electronically wiped, now we go back to the magistrate and say, here's why we want to search through the private issues on that phone, private data on that phone, right? That's, That's right. That's okay. right. Absolutely right. So, so what happens, I mean, I got to tell you, and I, you, know, you and I have been lawyers for quite some time, I think if I were just question on the street asked, I would have assumed that a Customs and Border Patrol agent would be bound by the strictures of Riley when I show up at the, the border to come back into the United States. I've got my passport right there. I've got my cell phone in the, my pocket. And I would assume Riley would apply. Ah, okay. Now what you've said you. Well, you've <laughs> just introduced the major point of contention right there. And that leads to a kind of a hybrid discussion. One's going to be Fourth Amendment and the right to be protected from unreasonable searches and seizures, and then the issue of exigent circumstances and location of the search. So, by way of background, there are certain places in society that do not enjoy the full expectation of privacy. There are settings where there's a reduced expectation of privacy 
or in some cases, virtually no expectation. You'll recall airport searches, for instance, Mitch, right? I, I, we spent a couple shows talking about airport searches, so, so that's right. So there yeah. airport searches, uh, public buildings, courtrooms, right? I believe those were on the, on the that's list right, as right. well. That's right. So in some cases on universities, there, there's been a discussion of, you know, they could have a, a metal detector before you go into a stadium for a sporting event. And so you're giving up some level of, of rights it, because you're choosing to go into that location. Right? That's right. That's right. And then in and I got to say that I would have put the border much higher on the list. If I'm a citizen of the United States and I just went out of, went out of the country for vacation, I would put being able to get back home maybe higher on the list than going voluntarily to the courtroom or to a public building or to a stadium. Okay, okay. so wait, let's expand on that. Okay. So so you so, so you're going to go ahead. Go ahead. You think no, you think that the border setting is dramatically different than an airport setting. I do. Okay, because and, and here's now I know that we're gonna get we're gonna get into a, a an issue of intra versus interstate. If I go too far down this path of do I have the right to travel on a plane? And and the Supreme Court's talked about that of whether you have the right to travel. But without going too far there, I I would argue that I I thought that I had the unfettered right to come home. Right. Right. Okay. So, but I was and, surprised. And then along with that unfettered right to get back on your turf, so to speak, your homeland, right? right? You think that along with that right comes a right to carry a cell phone across the border without it being subject to search. Yeah, I would have, I would have thought that I had the Riley standard of rights when I came back through the border as a U.S. citizen. Let's assume I'm not on on a list. I'm not, I don't have an outstanding warrant. I don't have any of the uh, issues that might have been flagged at the border. I'm just Joe Schmo coming home from vacation. I'm not carrying fruits or vegetables. I'm not, uh, I, you know, I don't have any contraband. I'm happy to have all my bags searched. Um, I think Joe Schmo is going to be surprised that when the border patrol agent says, now please give me your passwords to your phone, your computer, and your social media. Yeah, and, and I think you're right, and I think that's probably going to be one of the most common reactions to that. But let's talk about a little, a couple of topics before we go out on the break, and okay. we'll expand on it. But one is this idea of going from one sovereign nation into another. Okay. Right? okay. I just wanted to frame that one first. And, and the reason I'm doing it is that I think that method of travel, moving from one sovereign nation back to your homeland, that in and of itself creates a scenario that might give rise to a reduced expectation, potentially warranting the search. Well, I'm about to go out on break, but we are. Talk about the federal law that, that regulates this. Let's do that after we come back uh, from the break. We'll expand on that issue, the federal law and the state's law. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. We are talking about border searches and the potential searches of mobile and smartphones. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break.
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about border searches and the right of border personnel and security and ICE representatives to search cell phones when they encounter people crossing the border as part of the border entry process. And Mitch, okay, okay, you me right up to the border. I'm there at the border. I've You're got at the border. My expectations. I've got my Riley expectations that I don't mind having my fruits and vegetables poked over. Uh, dogs <laughs> sniffing me in the line. I'm I'm okay with all of those things. They're going to look at all my stamps in my passport. Passport. They're going to ask where I've been. They're going to ask where I live. I get all of that. So there I am. All right. Standing there at the little line, they've already pulled my luggage apart, my underwear and everything's all spread over the table. And now the question is, under what law 
can they then say, hand over your phone and give me your passwords? Yeah, okay. So here's where the federal law comes in, and this is out of the Code of Federal Regulations. So it is federal statutory authority. And, and that is that they have uh, federal border agents have the right to search all items that you try to cross the border with. So all luggage, all items you're in possession of, which would include the cell phone or the mobile phone. There's no reason that it shouldn't extend to that. So if you look at the statutory language, and one place to go to see this, by the way, would be the Department of Homeland Security uh, website, where they do articulate all the laws uh, and have a frequently asked questions section. But it really is... Uh, a strict application of the federal rule, Mitch. And so it's it. there's not that expectation that I have to have looked shifty, I have to have given a false answer, I have to have done any of the things. So I remember you walked me through at great detail the police officer at my door when we were talking about the Riley Constitution case. And you gave me great, I, I have to say, you know, I do tend to be a bit on the alarmist side of limiting police powers. But what you gave me great comfort in walking through the various steps of my constitutional rights of not having to let someone in the door, not having to let a policeman into my house. I mean, they have to have gone to a, uh, a judge. They need to have gotten a warrant. If they pull me over on the side of the road, there have to be reasons. There's all of those steps that exist, right? That's right. But I show up and I'm standing there at the border. I'm a U.S. citizen trying to get back to California and none of those apply. That's yeah, what you're yeah. telling me? That is what I'm telling you. So if you look at the strict application of the federal regulations, and I think it's 19 CFR 162. It's out of the 19 series, I think. Or the, okay. yeah, the 19 series. Right. So that law reads that just by definition all items are subject to search so if you envision airport travel you would know that your luggage is subject to search your hand luggage that you keep on your person and your checked luggage everything is searched so now if you look at the border crossing scenario and specifically at the smartphone or the mobile phone that now is subject to search. And I think, Mitch, the more uh, challenging issue is going to be what you had already referenced before, the request for pins and passwords. Right. So right. here's oh, back 15 years ago when lawyers started using the Internet. Al Gore had invented the Internet by then. And we started <laughs> using the, uh, email and computers in the practice of law, one of the speeches I would go around and give to young lawyers and bar associations was this uh, reasonable expectation of privacy from your clients. Right? And the very fact that you are my client is protected. That, that's part of the, the privacy that we guarantee our clients unless there's a very, as, as we all know, very small list of circumstances in which I can be made to give up information about my client, including their name, contact information, communication with them. <clears throat> so I, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about you know, if I'm coming across the border and now a federal 
police agent, police officer, really, and that, that's the role they're playing as a Customs and Border Patrol agent, says, please hand me your phone, give me the PIN number to unlock, and as I read this information on U.S. Customs and Border Protection's website, they are entitled to copy anything I have on that phone and search it. And that would include all of my client communications, all of my client records that I've had protected by a secured encrypted password, anything on that, on my laptop, all the documents that I've drafted for, for my client. I mean, that, that's the way this is going to play out, isn't it? Yeah, and, and Mitch, I'm glad that you mentioned that your, your introduction of the attorney-client privilege and the sensitive nature of items that are stored on a smartphone, that's right. really, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it takes me back to Riley a little bit and by way of history. And if you look at the Riley decision, it was quite clear from the high court that the time had come to start treating smartphones like hard drives. Right. And your reference to sensitive materials being stored in your smartphone as part of the data and the memory capabilities of the phone now brings it to a level where you've got much more at stake in terms of information that is, is exposed potentially. And so, I, mean, I don't want to the spot, but, let, but let's just think for a moment. If you were issued a laptop by your job and mm-hmm. you're, a, you're a, a prosecutor with sensitive information that you're working on, plea bargain deals, I mean, just the whole list of things are just part and parcel of your, the job you do every day. And so you head down to Mexico for a weekend because you've been working like crazy and you deserve a break, and, and, but you got a brief due in three days and you take it with you. And all of that is your private work. Now, you know, you're a public attorney, not a private attorney, but all of that's in there. And, and now you're going to have to give that up if they ask. Okay, so I, I should tell you there was no need for you to ramp up the hypothetical. You got me with your <laughs> attorney-client hypo. Oh, well, you know me. When, yeah, no, it was good. In for a pound. I figured I'm glad I'd, you, I'm I'd glad ramp it up it. one more step. I'm <laughs> glad you did it. So I could snuff it out, Mitch, and just say I would never travel with the computer. But uh, that that's not that's not what I want to do. Don't start to lying to our, client, our listener base now. Yeah, no, I want to I get on. So, so let's, let's run with what you've already set up with that hypothetical. Uh, and you've clearly set the marker down for the potential exposure and release of sensitive materials. So, any, any corporate data. It could be, you know, sure. could be the scientist working for you know, a genomics company, and you've got things in your, in your emails. I mean, it's, this is emails, not just documents. That's yeah, right. I could right. think of a, I could go on for hours about everybody who's got stuff. Not just your discussion with your your mom or your mistress. You know, I mean, we're talking about really important things, business mm-hmm. day. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if this is going to be good or bad tonic, but here's something to keep in mind in response to that scenario: when agents at the border do search and have access to sensitive materials, they are certainly not entitled to disseminate them. And I know that doesn't do a lot to assuage your concerns. We're, for but we're here to help. You, okay. <laughs> but it is true, Mitch. So, right. for instance, if a border agent took the material and actually disseminated it or used it to his or her advantage in some way, that would be a problem. 
Yeah, so that would that's, be a violation of a federal law, uh, ethics standards, and they would be liable. I, 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 I get that. It would. I guess so, what I, my point is that, and I know we're kind of beating it in here, but I got to say that if I was surprised about this, my guess is virtually everybody else is going to be surprised that this is the s- standard at the border. And the discussion, one of, one of the things I think is interesting about this is many of the discussions on this tier, it's like a tiered discussion. So one thing is if I'm, if I'm a foreign citizen and I'm asking to come to the United States, is there a different level of scrutiny than if I'm a permanent legal resident and I've been vetted by the United States, I've been allowed to live in this country, all of my paperwork is in order. Then the next level up is, if I'm a citizen of the United States, is there a different level of of review? And I would have bet, as they say, dollars to donuts, that, oh, of course, there must be a sliding scale of review at the border. And I don't think anybody's going to disagree with a higher standard for the for the uh, a, a non-citizen who wants permission to come into our country. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I think there would be expectation that there's a different standard for citizens who are not on any list and not doing anything untoward. And yet that's not the law yeah. you just read. Well, I, I think I'm going to gently disagree with that one, Mitch, and just offer this. Okay. Uh, I, I I don't think there should be a sliding scale or anything, any different treatment, for instance, if it's a U.S. national crossing the border on the theory that uh, they are a U.S. national and and categorically that for some reason they're not a safety risk, uh, a public safety risk. I just, I don't think that's sound. And and let me draw an analogy, Mitch, to courtrooms. in many courtrooms, court personnel can badge their way through security. In other words, they, they are probably known by the security officers that are usually sure. not peace officers, by the way. Well, and for example, and, and as, as you and I both know, for example, at the, in the superior courts of California, many locations, local lawyers through the Bar Association will be granted an ID badge and you don't have to go through the search. You don't have to put your briefcase through the metal detector because you're known by you're known by the court personnel. You're allowed to come in as an officer of the court. That's right. That's right. So not that I want to advocate for changing that procedure, but the point I'm making here is that I don't think you can predict with certainty what type of person poses a safety risk merely by virtue of their title, their role, or their lawful connection to, in this case, the United States, if we're going to go back to the border. That, that was my point. No, I get that. And, and just a, a reminder of another thing we've talked about in the previous shows, that there is this giant database. Uh, it's called IBIS, which is the... in interagency border inspection system, which is a giant list that, that the FBI, Interpol, the DEA, uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, IRS, Coast Guard, and a, a whole list of, of federal and international agencies participate in. And they put 
alerts out on this that's available. So when that Border Patrol agent scans your passport or types things in at the computer, your red flag would pop right up if you're on that list. Yeah, that's right. We, we talked about no-fly lists before, too. And this is a similar, a similar version of that. So, so that's all going on. And so uh, when, we, when we come back after the break, I, I, I do want to push back on this a little bit because I get what you're saying about the fact that there's no way to uh, presume safety based on status. But I'm going to take you back to our discussion uh, when we had the California Highway Patrol talking about the, uh, pulling the stops, uh, random stops on the road, pulling somebody over for the proverbial broken taillight. And, and that entire, I, I would like to hear you talk more about that hierarchy. Sure. Uh, why we're going to put that police officer through all of those issues of they have a, a laddered tiered system of of standards they have to meet before they can you know pull you over question you i like that idea i like that idea we can talk about search your cell phones (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and yet and and we've talked about that's one of the most i think the california highway patrol representative said as most people have heard it's one of the most dangerous things that a police officer can ever do is the random traffic stop that is that is and starts and, with a whimper, ends with a bang, often. Yes, yes, and yet here we have a much more controlled system where somebody has been vetted by security, airport security, on both ends, sitting behind a probably a bulletproof glass, and they're given this even broader. That's true. When we get when we come back, we'll pick up on that topic. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about border searches and police and citizen encounters, and we'll continue with that discussion when we come back. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. 
But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have been talking about border searches, and this has led to a discussion, of course, centered around the ability of border personnel to search mobile phones or smartphones, and that's parlayed into a discussion about general police and citizen encounters. And Mitch, before the break, uh, you had introduced the idea of uh, detentions, and you wanted to talk a little bit about Uh, how cases ripen from detention all the way into arrest. I would. We talked about the idea of, you know, can they ask for my cell phone? And we've we've now clearly made the the point that, yes, they can. Yes, as far as the current law stands, they can ask for your your passwords and your passcodes, not only for your cell phone, but for the social media that, that has access there. And that they can copy that data and they can keep that data. And they do have to give you the phone back at some point. So all of that is one side, but, but what about your person? Uh, can they actually hold me? Yeah, and detention. And I think, and I think you, you, you. I just want to come home. Yeah, geez, I just want to get back to the central coast. I right? really need to get home. <clears throat> Hurry up. Uh, so, so Mitch, here here's the the topic, and it relates directly to detentions of the person. And as you had kind of hinted, I think when we were off air. We wanted to discuss the issue of the length of detention. How right, long right. can it last? Because I think that's where this is heading. And as news is released uh, about the potential ramping up of border investigations, the focus will center on how long these encounters take. And there's been some estimates that it could take up to, is it three or four hours, Mitch? Is that what some no, of the no, estimates uh, are? Articles I were reading said, seemed to say that that would not be considered unreasonable. It's always kind of the backhand definition. It doesn't appear to be, there doesn't appear to be a bright line that says, well, we can hold you for four hours before we do anything. It appears to be more of a discussion that it's not considered unreasonable if you're held for questioning or detained for up to four hours while a determination is made whether or not to allow you to cross the border. That's really the issue. It's not it's not they're going to arrest you right there. It's a question of they get the absolute authority to decide, do you get to come in or do you get to stay out? And they can turn you away and send you the other direction. So the so action going to center around how long that detention can last. And we have had a discussion uh, centered around this before. And 
typically, if if you were to look historically at cases that have evaluated the length of a detention, courts are loath to put a clock to it, Mitch. They generally don't do that. So, for instance, they don't look at a police citizen encounter and say, okay, it looks like this was a drug sales investigation. How long should that take? Is there a template for that? You know, they don't do it that way. Instead, the courts have typically looked to totality of the circumstances, number of suspects, number of officers, location in which the encounter takes place. So all those factors count under a totality of the circumstances sort of evaluation. And the same thing's going to happen, I think, when courts scrutinize the length of the detentions at the border, Mitch. And I, you know, you were, you had pointed out when we were preparing this idea of what happens if the the traveler says, I'm not giving you my pin. Right. And right. that's happened. That's happened recently. So. Yeah. I'm not, not giving you my passport. I'm not going to give it to you. Okay. So what will happen is, wait here, kind sir. I'm seizing it. And while you're waiting, that's a detention. Right. You're detained. Because so, you can't come into the country and there's really no... Uh, I was going to say no vehicle, but literally probably no vehicle for you to go the other direction. If you've come in by air, there's nowhere for you to go. You're in Never Never Land here. That's true. And and, and you're not free to leave, by the way, in, in that scenario, very likely. So you're held at bay while your smartphone has been separated from you. And the question then would become, how long should that take? And... I've read the stories, I've read the commentary, just as you have, in terms of fixing an estimate, three to four hours. And what I think about legally is, if the detention extends too long, in other words, detentions are supposed to be measured by the length of time it takes to either rule in or rule out suspicious activity. That's Terry v. Ohio, right, Mitch? Correct. Correct. That's the case, that's the seminal case on pat searches and detentions, and it it still holds sway today. So, how long does it take a border agent to rule in or rule out suspicious activity with respect to his or her search of the smartphone? That's the way I I would be analyzing this. And it's fairly standard, uh, I would say standard, but uh, there are standards that are in the courts, as you've said, that go back for uh, some length of time that we could look to to see what is a reasonable detention. And as you said, detention, I think what's important for all of us to consider while we're having these conversations, we're not talking about the type of detentions that have been in the news about rounding up undocumented aliens and detaining them in detention centers until you determine whether or not they should be deported. Right. We're talking about a detention that could be up to several hours of a U.S. citizen who has presented themselves at the border to come back into the United States. And what, what we're telling everyone is, if it meets the standards that you've discussed, that is all okay. That there's And that your point is well taken. It, there doesn't appear to be any distinction whether you're a, a non-U.S. citizen asking to enter through the border or a U.S. citizen asking to enter back across the border. The scrutiny can be exactly the same. 
That's the detention right. can be the same. And the standard of whether you're safe or not to let you into the United States is within the discretion of the Custom and Border Patrol agent. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and I would say, Mitch, that, and I'd go on record as saying it's, it is my opinion that the law should be applied with equal force, irrespective of sovereignty or, or national origin. Because if you follow the logic of the importance of keeping borders safe, in my opinion, it's, it's very hazardous to try to make a fine line distinction. It, it, it's almost profiling and fraught with peril if you try to do that and, and make some categorical, uh, sorry, categorical decision that a U.S. national cannot pose a safety threat upon returning from another land. So I think we're going to have a chance to talk about this before, because it will not surprise you or our listeners that I'm going to come down on the other side of that discussion. But I, because I, I, again, for the same reason that I had great comfort when you told me what are my constitutional rights when the police officer knocks on my door mm-hmm. and there is a, 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 a tiered standard that they have to meet. And at some point, a judge has to be involved. And all of that works well for me when I'm standing at my door. The, the next question is when I'm standing at the border, I think we're going to get a court, and I think maybe even the Supreme Court, or certainly the legislature, is going to reopen this discussion and say, wait a minute, we've spent a lot of time setting up those standards for the protection of U.S. citizens within our borders. Why shouldn't some of those standards still exist for the protection of a U.S. citizen standing at our board. And, and I think that's going to be a great discussion. That, and sounds like that's going to be relatively new. Although I, when we're talking on the break, there is a case being argued, what, this week in the U.S. Supreme Court that might, might shed some light on this issue. Yeah, it? It, it will have some carryover application. That's, I, I think that's true. And that's the case of Hernandez versus Mesa. And that involves a border agent who shot and killed a uh, Mexican national, a, a young man uh, on Mexican soil. And uh, the issue there becomes whether or not uh, the constitutional safeguards somehow apply uh, so as to be used uh, proactively uh, by the the uh, family of the of the deceit. Right, and right. They actually tried to bring a, a civil lawsuit in the United States for the action of the border patrol agent who shot and I think shot and killed this, this a teenager who was on not in the United States. That's right. That's right. So, so that isn't that an interesting question? So now, now I I framed it. If I'm standing at the border as a citizen, do I have rights? It's possible that the Hernandez case may give us some insight into the thinking of the U.S. Supreme Court on where is is there a zone of protection? So that would be extending these constitutional rights that I've been railing on about maybe 10 feet across the border, 100 feet across the border, that if they have the right, some rights that extend into Mexico, there might be language in there that could be applied to our conversation today. Well, well yeah, yeah. 
we'll see. And the the other thing I wanted to get out, Mitch, is that the the action will center there on the Fourth Amendment protection against unjustified use of lethal force. That's going to be the highlight of that case. So, in other words, can the uh, Mexican national or his family actually cite effectively to the Fourth Amendment? And what is really interesting, Mitch, is that <clears throat> excuse me, this will bring back a case that was decided by Justice Kennedy, who actually wrote the majority opinion on the Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay case, which was a habeas corpus case, and the justices found in that case that uh, combatants detained at Guantanamo Bay did have the constitutional right to raise habeas corpus uh, actions, which is really an unlawful detainment or detention confinement action. Well, it'll be interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that case. There's a number. It's a great opportunity to remind everybody that the court is meeting. The court is in session, and and we will be talking about some of these, again, what I think may be landmark cases that are being argued almost as we speak during this session, and we'll, we'll have to come back on that. But before we leave this issue of border detention, let me ask you one more thing. Uh, it, it appears to me that there is a bit of a distinction on the on the question of can I just say, time out, I want a lawyer when I'm standing there or when I'm in detention and when I'm being questioned? And it, it appears to me, and I'd be interested in your take, is it appears to me that if you're a U.S. citizen, the answer is almost always yes, that you can just say, I'm going to sit here, I want my lawyer, and I'll wait. It could take four hours, it could take eight hours, but I want my lawyer. It's not clear to me that non-U.S. citizens... I, would be given that same. Right. I think that's right. And, and, and I wish I had a definitive answer, Mitch. What I can say is I think it will depend upon whether or not the investigation involves uh, an active crime or a criminal offense that's either ongoing or that there's facts to suggest that the detainee has been apprised of the fact that he or she is actually being investigated for an actual crime. I think that's going to be the main issue centered around that. Well, as we wrap this topic up, Stephen, I think it's important for us to remind everyone that, that one of the things we're talking about is existing law. And over the last several weeks, we have been talking about the balance between the judiciary, the executive, the legislative. And this is a case where the legislative comes front and center because uh, the senator from Oregon, uh, Ron Wyden, uh, appears to be filing a bill that says he wants to define these roles a little better. He's, he's raising questions about what are the rights of U.S. citizens at the border. And so I think it's a perfect example of, okay, we've got the executive through the Border Patrol has exerted their policies, and now the legislative arm of government is going to speak up. You got another branch in there, Mitch. I like that. <laughs> well, it's important to remind everybody they can listen to this show again and other archived shows at wagnerandwinnick.com. And as always, they can listen to this show on demand on voiceamerica.com business channel and on any of our affiliate stations. Each week we remind you as we sign off, as we will today, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.